the Zionists saw themselves as coming home to the ancestral land of the Jewish people. And that is the drive and the, the passion behind Israel. The Arabs had been in occupation of this same land since the Middle Ages, and they saw no reason why their land should go from them. So that the difficulty in accommodating uh, to the existence of the State of Israel is inherent. We're dealing with something that is uh, of its nature, has, has deep roots, and is rather intractable. Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of this series, Zionology, where I'll be examining the history and philosophy of Zionism. As I said in the introductory episode, Zionism is the political movement for the establishment and continuation of a homeland, or state, for the Jewish people. The first question it behooves us to ask then, is who exactly are the Jews? Firstly, they're practitioners of Judaism, a religion which, in principle, anyone can convert to and in doing so gain the right to Israeli citizenship. There is one requirement which is a little more onerous for men. Jews are also an ethnic group with something of a shared culture. This ethnicity is contended to have a strong genetic component. Judaism, it is claimed, was never a strongly proselytizing religion. So although there are both white European and black African Jews, all have ancestry going back to Judea, roughly the land modern-day Israel sits upon. A Zionist account of history has it that, at some point in the past, the Jewish people were exiled from this land and forced to settle across Europe and North Africa, then more broadly around the world. This exile is believed to have taken place either as a consequence of the 1st and 2nd century revolts against the Romans, or as a result of the Arab-Muslim conquest of the 7th century. The problem with this narrative is that it's highly unlikely to be true. In his book The Invention of the Jewish People, History professor Shlomo Sand contends there is scant evidence a large-scale expulsion of Jews from Judea ever took place, whilst the Romans were undoubtedly savage in their suppression of both the 1st and 2nd century uprisings, Judea was said to have been made desolate, evidence shows the province recovering and Jewish culture continuing there in the 3rd century. Incidentally, this is also the time the Romans renamed the province of Judea as Syria-Palestina, Due to the proximity of the revolt, many historians speculate that this was done to sever the connection of the Jews to their historical homeland, a claim often made by Zionists today. This might be the case, but there's no direct evidence of it, and it could equally have been about the reorganisation of Judea into a larger province. Versions of the name Palestine had been in use for at least five centuries, and are actually mentioned in the writings of Herodotus. Professor Sand contends the myth of a Roman-induced exile arose in Christianity. After the revolt, circumcised men were expelled from Jerusalem. Christian writers, such as Justin Martyr, saw this as divine punishment for their rejection of Jesus Christ. From here, the idea of mass Jewish expulsion developed as a part of Christian mythology, which was then adopted by the Jews themselves. From the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine, Palestine became a centre for Christianity with Constantine's mother overseeing the construction of churches in Jerusalem and numerous monks and religious scholars travelling there. The population became mostly Christian, and would remain so through the 7th century Arab conquest, until the conquest by Saladin in the 12th century. Professor Sand disputes the idea of an exile during the Arab conquest, citing the total lack of evidence for it, 
as well as it being inconsistent with Arab conquests elsewhere. He contends Zionist historians have constructed this myth due to the collapse of the Roman expulsion narrative, and that a more likely explanation is that the inhabitants of Palestine remained where they were and simply converted to Islam. This had considerable tax benefits. For a comparison, this is what the European Bosnian Muslims did under the Ottoman Empire. This idea of modern-day Palestinians being descended from Jews was actually embraced by several early Zionists, including no less a figure than Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. At that time, it was hoped that this narrative could lead to their acceptance of and inclusion in a Jewish state. But after riots killed hundreds of Jews and Arabs in 1929, the plan for integration was dropped and the history changed accordingly. If Jews weren't expelled en masse from Palestine then, where did the populations in Europe come from? It's clear from ancient accounts that even prior to the rebellion of the first century, there were many substantial Jewish communities scattered around the Mediterranean. This movement out of Judea went hand in hand with Greek cultural expansion during the time of Alexander the Great. The Jewish historian Josephus writes of Jews being taken to Egypt as captives, who went on to be respected citizens with equal rights. He also writes of others who went of their own accord due to the goodness of the soil and the liberality of the Greek king Ptolemy. Josephus also writes of a Greek king settling 2,000 Jewish families in two provinces. He quotes the Greek historian Strabo as saying, Now these Jews are already gotten into all cities, and it is hard to find a place in the habitable earth that have not admitted this tribe of men and is not possessed by them. End quote. Writing about a time two centuries later, the Alexandrian philosopher Philo Judaeus estimated there were two million Jews in Egypt. Whilst this is doubtlessly an exaggeration, it's an instructive one nonetheless. In the first century BC, the famous orator Cicero complained about how numerous Jews have become in Rome and of their weight in the popular assemblies. In assessing the figures proposed by different historians, Professor Sand concludes 4 million is a reasonable estimate, by no means the highest, for the number of Jews in the ancient world. While Sister Aspera was no doubt the result of hardship in Judea, there's no evidence for it being the consequence of an expulsion. This figure poses a problem, however, as it would seem impossible for so many Jews to emigrate out of Judea, or for their numbers to naturally increase to this level through the generations. Populations prior to the Industrial Revolution just didn't do that. The solution seems to be, in spite of common perception, that there were periods where vast numbers of people converted to Judaism. This would also account for why Jewish emigrant communities did not tend to speak Hebrew or Aramaic. It is documented that this conversion was sometimes achieved through force. Josephus writes of a conquest where the vanquished were permitted to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews, and that hereafter they were no other than Jews. Roman historian Cassius Dio wrote of Jews flocking to Rome in great numbers and converting many of the natives to their ways. He writes of Emperor Tiberius banishing most of them, but that by the time of his successor, Claudius, they had, increased so greatly that by reason of their multitude it would have been hard without raising a tumult to bar them from the city. Josephus also writes of the conversion of the kingdom of Adabeni, roughly situated in today's Armenia, to Judaism in the first century. Most controversially, we have the Khazar theory, 
The idea that Eastern Europe's Jewish population arose from a mass conversion of Turkic people in the Khazar Empire around a thousand years ago. After the collapse of this empire, these people became refugees in Russia and modern-day Poland. This would explain how the massive number of Jews in the East came to be in the absence of evidence of mass migration. Just as an aside, the Khazar theory does seem to have been appropriated for the basis of a genuinely anti-Semitic internet-based conspiracy theory, one where the name Jew is simply replaced with Khazarian Mafia. In the world of made-up geopolitics, this is used as an explanation and justification of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Mirroring this, we have Zionist efforts to brand all suggestion that Jewish ancestry is anything other than as described in the Bible as being anti-Semitic. Obviously this is equally as ridiculous. For a long time, I actually thought the whole theory of mass conversions, particularly the Khazar theory, had been soundly refuted due to genetic evidence of all Jewish groups having common ancestors in the Middle East. Events of recent years have perhaps left me more cynical of such scientific certainties, however, so I decided to double-check this. Genetic studies are employed by Zionists to justify modern Jews' right to the land of Israel. The essential claim is that geographically and culturally distinct Jews still have more genes in common than they do with non-Jews around them, and that such genes are of Levantine origin. Given just how much is riding on such studies, it might be reasonable to ask whether the science is politicised. Dr. Nareet Kirsch, a specialist in the history of Israeli science, investigated the early development of genetic research in the country. She wrote that, quote, Israeli human geneticists and physicians emphasise the sociological and historical aspects of their research and use their work, among other things, as a vehicle for establishing a national identity and confirming the Zionist narrative, end quote. In The Invention of the Jewish People, Professor Sand describes the history of Jewish genetic research, illustrating the constant contradictions and retractions within it. One publication and European Jews are closely related to Palestinian Arabs, a retraction later and they have more in common with the Welsh. He points out that, so far, quote, no research has found unique and unifying characteristics of Jewish hereditary based on a random sampling of genetic material whose ethnic origin is not known in advance. The bottom line is that, after all the costly scientific endeavours, a Jewish individual cannot be defined by any biological criteria whatsoever. End quote. Experts in genetics adopt stridently opposing positions on the validity of each other's research into Jewish origins. The debate is utterly indecipherable to any outsider, and I come away with the sense that interpreting mutations in Y chromosomes is as much art as it is science. Professor Sand contends that genetics is just the modern, socially acceptable word for race. The search for a Jewish gene is then merely the updated version of crude attempts to identify Jews by their fingerprints or skulls. I certainly would not bet the house on any particular theory of Jewish ancestry being true. Ancient sources no doubt reflect something of the truth, but they are also the subjective impressions and estimations of their writers. Many people in modern times complain of their countries being overrun by foreigners of some sort. Maybe Cicero was no different. The Khazar theory does explain the large numbers of Jews who pop up in Eastern Europe, but the paucity of accounts regarding this ancient Jewish kingdom leaves plenty of room for doubt. Genetic research might absolutely settle the question, one way or the other, if only we knew which, if any, geneticists to believe. In the absence of the ability to determine, People tend to find the science that suits their agenda as the correct kind. 
Doubtlessly, all our ancestors have been aggressed against in history. But the question is, can any Jewish person demonstrate beyond any degree of reasonable doubt that their ancestors were forcibly expelled from ancient Judea? It doesn't seem likely. It's frankly bonkers then for Zionists to stake a collectively based property claim, or a claim to be decolonizing the land, on this narrative. But does any of this really matter? The short answer is no, and yes. No, because having ancestors who lived somewhere 2,000 years ago obviously does not give you property rights there today, no matter how they left. Outside of very esoteric discussions on the philosophies of John Locke and Murray Rothbard, I don't think this requires further elaboration. But yes, because our world does not run on such philosophy, but rather on mythological notions arising from an attachment to the Bible. I'll play a clip of how Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu describes this whole thing. The Jewish people uh, have lived in the land of Israel, what is now the, the state of Israel, uh, have lived here and have been attached to this place for about 3,500 years. Three and a half millennia. Now, for the first two millennia, roughly, of that time, uh, we were living in what is described in a text commonly known as the Bible. So the Bible describes how the Jewish people lived on this land, were attached to this land, fought off conquerors, sometimes were conquered, but stayed on their land. And that uh, continued uh, for a very long time until roughly the 6th, 7th century, actually, uh, after the birth of Christ, okay? For, for roughly for 2,000 years. Uh, we were conquered by the Romans. We were conquered by the Byzantines. They did a lot of bad things to us, but... They didn't really exile us, contrary to what people think, okay? The, ones, uh, the, the, the loss of our land actually occurred when the Arab conquest took place in the 7th century. The Arabs burst out from Arabia, and they did something that no other conqueror, not the Romans, not the Byzantines, not the Greeks before them, not Alexander the Great, nobody did before. They actually started taking over the land of the Jewish farmer. They brought in military colonies that took over the land. And gradually, over the next two centuries, the Jews became a minority in our land. So it is under the Arab conquest that the Jews lost their homeland. The Arabs were the colonials. The Jews were the natives dispossessed. This mythology throws up all sorts of ongoing problems for modern-day Israel. Upon the country's founding, it made it necessary to cleanse the land of 730,000 Palestinians, then deny them the right to return to their property, lest Jews be a minority in the Jewish state. A normal state, which exists for all its citizens, wouldn't have had this problem. The Israeli government grants every Jew in the world the unrestricted right to immigrate there and become a citizen. This is a real problem when you have a hard time defining what a Jew actually is. Initially, the government accepted a Jew as being any person who simply saw themselves as a Jew, similar to our modern concept of gender. It wasn't until 1970 that it was decided. A Jew is one who was born to a Jewish mother or converted to Judaism and does not belong to another religion. So if a Jewish brother and sister both marry Gentiles, his children will not be Jewish unless they take up the religion, whereas her children will be Jews by default. They wouldn't have to show any interest in Judaism and can even be atheists. What they can't do, however, is adopt another religion. That would result in their Jew card being revoked. I'm not making this up. In spite of being a Zionist who fought against the Nazi occupation of Poland, 
Jewish-born Oswald Rufusen was denied Israeli citizenship in 1962 on the basis that he had converted to Christianity. Shortly after this, the grandchild clause was added to the law of return, so that non-Jews could immigrate if they had a single Jewish grandparent or were married to someone who does. These non-Jewish immigrants cannot marry a Jew, however, without going abroad, as interreligious marriage is not possible in Israel. At the same time as this welcoming of people without even the pretense of a connection to the land, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were being denied the right to live in the very place they were born. As you're listening to this, it might have occurred to you that there's a hypothetical solution to the whole conflict here. All that is required is for Palestinians to convert to Judaism en masse. This would instantaneously grant them Israeli citizenship, leading to a de facto one-state solution and full resolution of the conflict. You can imagine my elation when this thought first popped into my head. My dream of collecting a Nobel Peace Prize was soon shattered, however, when I found I was not, in fact, the first person to come up with this modest proposal. The rabbis who review immigration applications based on conversion state that Palestinian applications are thrown out without even being considered. It seems Palestinians, in spite of their genetic inheritance, don't make for good Jews. This is really my point about Zionism being a cult. The beliefs that underpin it fall apart under the most cursory questioning, whilst real human lives must be sacrificed to maintain its illusions. In the next episode, I'll examine those beliefs and illusions further by looking specifically at the Christian Zionists. Thank you for listening. In addition to my usual details, I've placed a link in the info box to Christian Aid's Gaza Crisis Appeal. 